A reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, and 42, verses 1 to 9, and then Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20, and finally 52. These are God's words. But there shall be no gloom to her that was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time hath he made it glorious by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, thou hast increased their joy. They joy before thee according to the joy and harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, thou hast broken as in the day of Midian. For all the armor of the armed man in the tumult and the garments rolled in blood shall be for burning, for fuel, for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. Behold, my servant, whom, I'm, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry, nor lift up his voice, nor cause it to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick will he not quench. He will bring forth justice in truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set justice in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God Yahweh, he that createth the heavens, and stretched them forth, he that spread abroad the earth, and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thy hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise unto graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And there were shepherds in the same country abiding in the field, and keeping watch by night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is anointed the Lord. And this is the sign unto you. Ye shall find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men in whom he is well pleased. And it came to pass when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, 
they made known concerning the saying which was spoken to them about this child. And all that heard it wondered at the things which were spoken unto them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these sayings, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, even as it was spoken unto them. And finally, verse 52, Jesus advanced in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. These are God's words. Please be seated. Today we celebrate the feast that, when we still had a queen, I used to like to call King's Birthday. Now that we have a king, I suppose, to avoid confusion, I will have to go back to calling it Christmas like a normal person. But either way, what I want to look at today is the remarkable fact that the history of the world is divided into two eras. From our perspective, every new historical record that will ever be written, forever, will use a calendar that divides time into two parts, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini. Now, leaving aside the slight historical goof that Christ was actually born in B.C. 3, almost certainly, the fact is that the history of the world will be forever recorded according to the dating scheme that separates time into the era before his birth and the era of his reign. Now, secularists are admittedly going to great pains these days to conceal this fact, but that is all they are able to do. All they can do is obfuscate it, hide it. They cannot do away with it. They cannot undo it. They cannot change it. So for some time, they have been using the terms CE and BCE instead of AD and BC, which mean common era and before common era. And according to Wikipedia, which, as we know, is always to be trusted, since the later 20th century, BCE and CE have become popular in academic and scientific publications because BCE and CE are religiously neutral terms. They are used by others who wish to be sensitive to non-Christians by not explicitly referring to Jesus as Christ, nor as Dominus, Lord, through use of other abbreviations. In other words, as one meme puts it, it's the year 2022. Christianity is no longer relevant. To which the obvious response is, 2022 years since what? You see, changing the words, changing the terms, does not change the reality. Secularists can try to divert people's attention away from it by changing the language that we use, but they are powerless to change the reality itself. The world-altering fact of Christ's birth and his reign simply does divide history into two halves. Now, AD does not mean after death, by the way. What comes after 1 BC? 1 AD. Christ did not die the same year he was born. AD means Anno Domini. It is Latin. It means in the year of the Lord. In other words, we are living in the time, the era, the epoch, the year of our risen Lord, the age that belongs to him. AD, Anno Domini, is an overt reference to the present and ongoing reign of Christ. But this raises a question for many people, especially in times such as ours. They look at the world and they cannot reconcile the rulership of Christ with the world that they see. They see our government increasing in tyrannical overreach. They see the love of many growing cold, society crumbling, life getting harder, inflation. Have you been to the grocery store recently? And they think 
this does not look like the reign of Christ. This looks like the other thing. This looks like someone quite different is in charge. It looks like the reign of Satan. Surely Christ's government is not presently increasing, as we read in Isaiah. Surely quite the opposite is happening. One Christian put it to me just the other day. She said, I know we shouldn't view the scriptures through our contemporary cultural geopolitical lenses, but a lot of people struggle to see how Jesus is reigning on the earth when evil and disaster, sickness and disease are so rampant. Sure, one could argue that he reigns in the hearts of believers, and that would be true. But if this is what Jesus meant by reigning, then we have to shift our frame of thinking to say that it's an internal reality not an external one. This is an, an accurate summation, I think, of how many people feel. And the last sentence especially gets to the heart of the matter. We have to shift our frame of thinking, she thinks, to say that it is an internal reality, this reign, not an external reality. This hits on the practical reasons that this entire question is of such importance. Is Jesus only ruling internally in our hearts? Or is he also ruling externally in the world? How we answer this question has enormous implications for the entire world itself, for how we practice our faith in the world, for what we expect of the world, and for the effect that we have on the world. Now this sermon is not technically part of the series that I've been preaching through on the church, and yet that series has laid a great deal of the groundwork that we need to look at the key ideas that I want to touch on today. We're going to draw in a considerable number of the doctrines that we have learned in the past few weeks in order to answer this question. Is Jesus really reigning externally? And if so, why does the world look the way that it does? Now to cut straight to the chase, I think the answer to this question is actually contained within the very fact that we celebrate Christmas as the turning point of history. What I mean is there is significance in celebrating Christmas specifically as the pivot between the age that was and the age that is, rather than celebrating Easter or celebrating the Ascension. Because if you think about it, that's actually a little bit strange. Surely the year of our Lord started at Easter or maybe at the Ascension. It was at his resurrection, after all, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God now in power, as Romans 1 says. And it was at the resurrection, at the ascension, I should say, that he was installed as that Son of God at God's right hand to receive dominion over the world. Look at the connection between Acts 1 and Daniel 7. In Acts 1, we read in verses 9 to 11, when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were still looking steadfastly into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was received up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye beheld him going into heaven. They repeatedly say he has gone into heaven, and he goes into heaven on a cloud. Now in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of heaven, one like unto a son of man. And he came even to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus ascends into heaven on a cloud. It's repeatedly emphasized four times the word heaven is used in this very short little passage. It's repeatedly emphasized he's gone into heaven on a cloud. He is taken to the throne of God, and he receives dominion there. And when Stephen is stoned in Acts chapter 7, he confirms that this has taken place. Look what happens. He says, He, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, time would honestly fail us to look at all of the places in the New Testament that speak of Jesus presently reigning. 1 Peter 3.22 summarizes well when it speaks of Christ, who is on the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Revelation 1.5, which we read in our commission every Lord's Day, says that he is right now the ruler of the kings of the earth. And of course, we know that his reign does not end until the resurrection, for he must reign till he hath put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 26. He doesn't abolish death, that is, raise everyone to eternal life again, and then defeat more enemies. Death is the final enemy. So Christ is presently reigning. He has been reigning since his ascension, but historically, the church has not marked the beginning of his reign at the ascension. There is a feast of the ascension, which we will celebrate next year as part of our liturgical calendar. But in his own providence, as the ruler and the author of history, he has given us a calendar that marks the beginning of the age of our Lord, not at his coronation before the throne of the Ancient of Days, when he entered into heaven itself for us, nor even at his defeat of death and Satan and the armies of darkness, where he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross, but rather at his birth as a helpless infant laid in an animal's eating trough. Rush Dooney, in his Institutes of Biblical Law, observes this curious historical detail. He says, The joyful news of the birth of Christ is the restoration of man to his original calling with the assurance of victory. This has long been celebrated in Christmas carols. The cultural mandate and post-millennialism is either explicit or implicit in Christmas carols. But have you ever stopped to wonder why? To, to say, why are there no Easter carols? Surely Easter is at least as important as Christmas. Why don't we have a lot of hymns that are devoted to that time of year and to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, not just for our justification, but to take dominion over every other authority? Why do we have a completely different culture of celebration around Christmas than we do around Easter? Or why don't we have ascension carols? Why does Christmas have a unique sound and feel that these feasts do not? Think about the words of the carols that we sing. How many of them speak of Christ's rule in some way? It came upon a midnight clear, for lo, the days are hastening on, when with the ever-circling years comes around the age of gold when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling. Hark the herald, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. 
we three kings. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. O holy night, truly he taught us love one another, his law is love, his gospel is peace, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we, let all within us praise his holy name, Christ is the Lord, O praise his name forever, his power and glory evermore proclaim. Joy to the world, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Then no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Or while shepherds watch, what we just sang, all glory be to God on high, and on the earth be peace. Good will henceforth from heaven to men begin and never cease. Many carols speak also, also of Jesus being the newborn king, of course, and by implication, though, the last king. For obviously no greater king will ever be born, nor will anyone take rulership from him. Several carols refer to the baby Jesus as the desire of nations, which is language from Haggai 2.7. Angels we have heard on high calls him the Lord of heaven and earth, Others, like While Shepherds Watch, speak of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And this is all very hard to understand, except in a post-millennial sense. A sense that believes in the present reign of Christ that will increase continually until the world is a Christian world. Think of how God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen describes it. This holy tide of Christmas, all other doth deface. Do we celebrate any pagan holidays anymore? Are we celebrating the winter solstice right now? No. Christmas has defaced it. Now, why do you think this is? Is it just a historical accident that it is Christmas that we sing these things instead of Easter or the Ascension? Obviously, I do not believe in historical accidents. Let me suggest, rather, that it is because the pattern by which Jesus now rules is the same pattern by which he lived his life. Here's what I mean. We've seen before that before there is exaltation, there must always be humiliation. Before being raised up, you must be made low. Jesus began his life as a helpless baby. He was not formed from the ground as Adam was, a complete man. He was made a helpless baby baby. He had to grow up under the protection of his father who took him into Egypt. He had to advance in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men in order to take his place as the ruler of the kings of the earth. He had to be made low as a child before he could be exalted as an adult, and he had to die on a cross before he could be resurrected as the son of God in power. Now that he is the son of God in power, what is the means by which he rules? Well, we have looked at this, but I will refresh your memories. What does the scripture say? Ephesians 1, to 23, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. 
Remember what we have learned about the church itself, the body of Christ, in which we each participate as members. In English, we normally translate this as fellowship, but in the Greek, it is really much more like mutual participation. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom ye were called into the mutual participation of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 6.17, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Or Romans 7.4, wherefore, my brethren, ye also were made dead to the law through the body of Christ, that ye should be joined to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bring forth fruit unto God. Or John 15.4-5, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, so neither can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit. For apart from me ye can do nothing. And in the high priestly prayer of John 17, of course, Jesus prays of us, his people, a prayer which we must surely believe is answered by God, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. In the same way, Hebrews 3.14 says that we have become partakers of Christ, just as Jesus told Peter in John 13.8, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And this in turn is why Romans 12.5 says that we are members one of another. We all mutually participate in one another because we all mutually participate in Christ through his spirit, fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's Ephesians 2.21. Again, time would fail us to list every scripture which speaks of this union with Christ. It is a, a fundamental and foundational doctrine. And usually we think of union with Christ in terms of salvation. So, for instance, Romans 6, 4 to 5 says, We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And Galatians 2.20, of course, is a very pivotal passage. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that liveth in me. And that life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, the faith which is in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. But union with Christ is not just about salvation, or not just about individual salvation might be a better way of putting it. It forms the foundation of everything in the Christian life. Christ lives in us, and so our lives begin to follow the pattern of his life. He lives in his body, just as we ourselves live in our bodies. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Lord, the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is, of course, talking about our ongoing sanctification until the time that we are glorified and we become like he is because we see him face to face. It is talking about growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. This is an ongoing and, as you all know, sometimes a frustratingly slow process. But like I said, Jesus does not live in us only. He lives in his body, which is the church. The church is a body, and bodies are fractal. And that's true. So what is true at the individual level is also true at the corporate level. 
We are each individually temples, and yet the church itself is also the temple. And so scripture speaks, for instance, of the sanctification of wives as directly analogous to the sanctification of the church itself. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. But is the church currently without spot or blemish? You think individual sanctification is slow and frustrating. What about the sanctification of the universal church? 2,000 years later, is she yet spotless? Just as we are not, so the church is not. What is true of a wife or a husband is also true of the church. We are each of us being transformed into the image of Christ, transformed from glory to glory. This is a slow process. And as we are transformed, the church that we are part of is transformed also. In 20 years' time, Redwood will not look like it now looks. If we are indeed sanctified, it will look greater. It will be more glorious. This sanctification is a principle that applies at every level, across time and space. And so in the same way, the whole church that existed in the first century, all the people of God under the apostles and their successors, They were less glorious than the church, say, in the 4th century under bishops like Athanasius and Nicholas, who, of course, cuffed Arius in the head for denying the divinity of Christ. Yes, that happened. It is a true myth. The church, like the Lord Jesus and like every one of us, started to grow up. It matured. The Council of Nicaea helped to establish the deep and pivotal doctrines of Christology and gave us a creed that we still use today. But at the same time, that church, the 4th century church, did not work out many other doctrines, which we now think are very important to have worked out, like justification by faith alone. We all know that in our own lives, sanctification is not a clean, fast, straight run directly to the finish line. Many sins in our lives go undetected or unrepented for years. Even once we are well established in the faith and we know the Lord well, Sometimes we go through periods of darkness where we turn away from God or we feel that he has turned away from us and we grow very little. Sometimes we even backslide into a state that looks worse than before we first believed. Think of children raised in Christian homes. Do they not sometimes rebel as teenagers? Do they not turn from the ways of their parents and their God? And so after the church's infancy in the first few centuries, and after its childhood in which it became established, we have medieval Catholicism, in which it starts to get its own ideas, it starts to experiment with drugs, it starts wearing outrageous clothes and listening to strange music and making bad friends and generally acting rebelliously. But Christ does not leave his church in this state. He continues to draw it back and discipline it and teach it. It is his desire that speaking truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Ephesians 4.15. Church is growing up. But unlike a man whose maturation takes decades, the church's takes centuries, maybe millennia. 
No matter, a thousand years to the Lord is as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Eventually, he puts an end to the teenage rebellion in the Middle Ages, and we have the glorious repentance and restoration that takes place in the Reformation. But even the Reformation was not the full maturity of the church. That day is very far off still. We don't know how far. The Reformation was perhaps a kind of coming of age for the church. But now, having come of age, we have gone off to university and filled our heads with foolish ideas and worldly wisdom, leaving behind the practices of our former life, becoming lazy and apathetic, worrying far too much about what our cool friends think, and we have, to use the words of our Lord in Revelation 2, forgotten our first love. And so we must do the work of repentance again. We have fallen, but every fall brings with it an opportunity for exaltation. It is through this pattern of death and resurrection that God continually transforms his church from one degree of glory to another. And it has always been this way throughout history. One of the things that we in the Western church must repent of is not believing and not acting as if we truly are Christ's body on earth, as if we truly are the instrument by which he exercises his rule, by which he disciples the nations and brings them into obedience to him. We need to repent of not obeying our great commission, not believing that we are meet to the task of training nations. The Western Church has developed a very defeatist pattern of thinking. We have listened to false prophecies about how we lose down here. Prophecies that say Jesus doesn't win through his church. His body is too weak. His body is overcome by evil and must be rescued and taken up to heaven so that he can win the battle for us. No, that is not how it works. We have believed these false prophecies to the point that we are starting to fulfill them. But self-fulfilling prophecies are not the prophecies of God. A paper published in the Journal of Positive Psychology, so take that bias into account, compared children who are taught to have positive views of the world versus children who are taught negative views. What are the outcomes, they wanted to know, for children whose parents teach them that the world is a dangerous place, for instance, imagining that this will help their children to be safer, compared to children who are taught that the world is a safe place, imagining that this will keep their children more optimistic. Well, here is how they summarize their findings. Quote, We first show that such negative assumptions are common. 53% preferred dangerous world beliefs for their children. As predicted, regardless of occupation, more negative beliefs were almost never associated with better outcomes. Instead, they predicted less success, Less job and life satisfaction, worse health, dramatically less flourishing, more negative emotion, more depression, and increased suicide attempts. Parents think, incorrectly, that teaching their children that the world is a bad place is likely best for them. End quote. This is an obvious creational pattern, if you think about it. If you teach your children that things are bad, and that they're likely to fail, you make them more likely to fail, and to make things bad. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, do you think that the church is exempt from this pattern? Do you think that if the fathers of the church teach their children, if the shepherds teach their sheep, that we are too weak to defeat Satan, too weak to overcome the world, too weak to disciple the nations and bring them into obedience to Christ, the very job that he gave us, and that we are going to fail and lose and have to get miraculously rescued, do you think that it will have a positive or a negative effect? on the outcome of the church's ministry? The answer is obvious, of course. 
So much of our repentance must be turning away from our false self-fulfilling prophecies and turning back to the true prophecies of God so that he would fulfill them for us. I love this clarity. The gates of hell will never prevail against us. The church is the body of Christ, the way in which he advances and promotes his reign here on earth. For the body of Christ to be truly defeated, I don't mean for it to be weak or have setbacks or to be persecuted for a time. I mean for it to be truly defeated to the point that we need a supernatural airlift out of here. Would that mean not that Christ has been defeated? If you defeat a king's body, do you not defeat the king? That is how bodies work. That is never going to happen. Jesus reigns through us. Which means that the state of the world, the way in which we perceive the outward reign of Christ in our own nation, and as I've noted from the beginning, we perceive it negatively. Most Christians think, where is it? The way that we perceive the outward reign of Christ in our own nation has everything to do with the inward reign of Christ in our hearts. The reign of Christ in his church reflects into the culture. The state of our nation is not imposed upon the church. The state of the church is imposed by Christ upon our nation. We are not the passive party here. We don't wait around to see what the world will do to us. We are the ones commissioned with declaring the rulership of Christ, with teaching them his law, with training them in obedience. The state of the church determines the state of the world, which means the state of New Zealand tells you a great deal about the state of New Zealand's churches. Does our current state look bad? Yeah, it does. But the promise cannot fail. We will continue to plunder the underworld of souls. We will have victory. Christ fights with us. We need to bind up what is weak, lift our drooping hands and palsied knees and make straight paths for our feet that that which is lame be not turned out of the way but rather be healed. Just as our Lord requires us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, he requires his church to do the same. And just as he bears with our weaknesses for a time when we stumble and backslide, so he bears with his church. He is a patient master. Look back at our passage. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. But also, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set justice in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Something you learn very quickly when shepherding people is just how bruised many of God's reeds are. We are all needy people, and many of us are dimly burning wicks. It would take only a tiny too much wind to blow them completely out. It's easy to quench such wicks. You, you wish to kindle them, to fan them with... Uh, the, the truth of God's word, to blow them into a full flame again, to see them burn brightly. And so you blow on them the demands of God's law, but they are too weak. And instead of being kindled, they are extinguished and the fire goes out. If only you had blown more gently. And Jesus called them and saith unto them, Ye know that they who are accounted to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
But it is not so among you. But whosoever would become great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever would be first among you shall be servant of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You see what a gentle ruler the Lord Jesus is. He does not break the bruised reeds. He does not quench the dimly burning wicks. He nurtures and nurses them. He is patient and long-suffering and unfailing in bearing with our weaknesses. And because his heart is only for us, only for preserving his people, he does not fail and he is not discouraged as he sees wickedness increasing in the land. He knows that he will bring forth justice in the end, even if the isles have to wait for that justice, because it will be delivered by the people that he is slowly building up. He cannot bring forth justice if he is not patient to bring forth those who can teach justice and do justice and stand firm against injustice. And so when the angels come to him with the same question that we have, the question of how can he permit evil while he's exercising his reign? How is that consistent with his rulership? They say to him, behold, there are tares, there are weeds growing up among the righteous. Shall we tear them out? Shall we destroy the wicked? What is his response? Matthew 13, 29 to 30. No, lest happily while ye gather up the tares, ye root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. This is why his kingdom grows so slowly. It is not because he is weak and his rule is ineffective. It is because he does not establish it in the same way as the kings of the earth. He does not lord it over those under his charge. He brings it forth gradually, gently, carefully for the sake of his people. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But we know that the full grain will come. We know the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He will reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and he will use us to do it. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, and through us, that same gentle rulership will be exercised in New Zealand and in every nation around the world. How do we apply this here at Redwood? How do we make ourselves a vessel as a little church of Christ's reign in New Zealand. It sounds very grand, but what do we actually do? How do we become a strong part of his body, capable of exercising rule on his behalf? If we would be used by Christ to train others in righteousness, the answer is really very simple. We must first train ourselves. Of what use is a body part that will not obey the commands of the head? There are people who have diseases like that, where they they cannot control their bodies. Many people live with various kinds of paralysis. Many people have Parkinson's. The head issues a command, but the body will not obey. I'm afraid that the state of Christ's body in New Zealand is the same. It suffers from a spiritual disease, a spiritual paralysis called disobedience. The remedy is not difficult to discern. It's just difficult to take. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Older women, teach the younger women to love their husbands. Teach their children, work in their homes. 
employees, work faithfully as unto the Lord. Every one of us, if we would make Redwood a strong member of Christ's body, must in our hearts set apart Christ alone as Lord. We must worship him as he commands in spirit and truth. We must reverence his name and everything attached to it. We must remember his Sabbath to keep it holy. We must put away all anger and malice and hatred in our hearts. We must put to death the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. We must turn away from greediness and gluttony. We must hate falsehood, have no part in gossip or slander, and take no delight in receiving or spreading false reports about anyone. We must guard ourselves from envy and covetousness and practice contentment and joy in every blessing that we receive from the hand of God. We must obey his law and repent quickly when we fail so that we would become strong and nimble members of his body, responding quickly to his commands with vigor and with strength. I started off by asking, is Jesus only ruling internally in our hearts, or is he also ruling externally in the world? I hope you can now see this is a false dichotomy. It is not a real distinction. Rather, it is because Christ exercises his reign through the church, because of his internal rulership, in our hearts, that his external rulership in the world is established. It is because he reigns in our hearts that we obey his command to preach the gospel to all creatures, to train the nations in righteousness. This has been an ever-increasing reality throughout history. Are there more Christians now than when Jesus sent out the twelve? The pattern of increase is obvious. But when we are weak, his reign also looks weak. Evil increases in the world. When we are strong, his reign is strengthened and his law goes forth. And the kings of the earth come to him through the discipleship of the church to present their gifts and their riches. So let us sing now of the prototype of that great influx of worshipping Gentile rulers in our next carol, We Three Kings.